it had kind of come to a head, some of the guilt and depression, and I needed to do something to kind of prove to myself that I wanted and deserved to be here. I needed a big challenge to prove I was still capable of something like this. And it was very important to me to, to honor the friends I lost by living instead of isolating and not wanting to be here. And then having lost friends to suicide, knowing that there's 22 a day that are doing this and that I was so close myself, it was kind of a personal, intimate testimony to that too. A lot of people didn't know that we were losing 22 veterans a day. It's a lot. It's, it's so many. I mean, you fight so hard to get back. And um, I would describe it as the, the war inside is just totally different than the ones we were trained to win. That's Sarah Lee. And this is the Rich Roll Podcast. Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? What's happening? This is indeed the podcast. Welcome or welcome back. You are in the right place. So pull up a seat. It's cool. Get comfortable. You can come closer. Come on, slide up. Get in the front. Get in the listening mode. Pay attention. There you go. Good. Because today, today we're going to talk about an important subject. We're going to talk about mental health. We're going to explore post-traumatic stress, PTSD, uh, what it's like to be so at war with oneself, to be lost in such a darkness that suicide feels like the only option. And we're going to discuss the path to healing. And our steward for this exchange is Iraq War combat veteran Sarah Lee. And I'm going to explain all about who she is and why. But first... Let's support the sponsors that make these important conversations possible. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team, from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. 
And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Okay, let's get into it. Combat veteran Sarah Lee. So Sarah is a former army sergeant who served eight years in the military, including a 14-month deployment to Iraq in 2004 for Operation Iraqi Freedom II, after which she retires from the military. She returns to civilian life and, and then begins to really struggle to reacclimate to some semblance of normality. She suffers from chronic pain. She finds herself increasingly more and more isolating from friends and family. She begins emotionally eating. She develops this grapefruit-sized ovarian cyst that leads to a full hysterectomy. It's basically one thing after another until she finds herself 100 pounds overweight and descending into this very dark depression that becomes so bleak that in April of 2017, she very nearly takes her own life. And the absolutely bone-chilling part about our conversation is this. The very day, the very same day, in fact, at the exact same time that Sarah and I recorded this conversation, which was a fair while ago, it was the afternoon of November 7th of last year, several months ago, there just so happened to be another military veteran 
a machine gunner who had spent time in Afghanistan, literally just miles from my home, just down the road in the next town over, who was also suffering from some very, very dark thoughts. Sarah Lee found a healthy way out, a healthy way forward, but 28-year-old Ian David Long did not. Just hours after Sarah and I concluded our conversation and just 13 miles away, this young man pulls out a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol with a laser sight and opens fire on a crowd of mostly 20-somethings, people just enjoying themselves at the Borderline Grill in Thousand Oaks. And he ultimately kills 12 people before fatally shooting himself. And I think the confluence of, of these two events really underscores and emphasizes the, the severe gravity of our mental health epidemic, that PTSD is a very serious issue. Somewhere between 11 and 20% of all Iraq war veterans suffer from it. 30% of Vietnam vets, something like 22 veterans take their own lives every single day, which is it's just horrifically insane. War, of course, takes its toll, but I think it's incumbent upon all of us to better address the undeniably significant psychological effects that we ask our brave men and women to endure. Sarah's healing begins with a bicycle. And this is a story about many things, but ultimately I think it's about courage. It's about healing and it's about redemption. And I think I'm just going to leave it there and let Sarah tell you the rest. Well, thank you for being here today. Congratulations on your epic bike ride across America. Thank you. I can't you. wait to hear a little bit more about it. Um, and explore the connection between fitness and adventure and mental well-being, which I think is super important. Um, you finished the ride in July, right? I was finished uh, in September. Oh, in September. Yes, oh, it was September more recent 30, than I thought. Wow. Labor Day. That's right. Oh, you start. You started again. Resu you resumed it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. June, okay, yes, yeah, yes. Right. I had to start again June second. Right. Yeah. Well, um, you're here. We're going to talk about all this kind of stuff. Um, your story is super inspiring. Uh, Thank what you. you've overcome and what you decide to tackle and 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 kind of th what I think you know is most important is what it means for the rest of us. So to set the stage to provide a little context, why don't we go all the way back to the beginning? Right? So you end up uh enlisting, right? At like mm -hmm. a pretty young age. Yes, I joined the, the Army National Guard at age 17. So uh -huh. My parents had to co-sign. <laughs> what was the what was the motivation? Like where, was that something you always wanted to do? I always wanted to do something like that. It was between the military or possibly the FBI. I looked into both uh -huh. and I just felt a little more of a calling toward the military. Um, I always wanted to be part of something bigger than myself. I mm -hmm. craved a challenge constantly. I played sports and everything and um, I really enjoy the, the physical challenge, the mental challenge, you know, to see how far I can push right. myself and, and push others too. Did you grow up in a military family? You have brothers and sisters? I have one sister. Um, no, to answer your question, yeah. no. I, I have um, two great uncles that served. 
Uh, one was a, a full bird colonel in the army. He's an intelligence officer, communications uh -huh. officer. He actually uh, participated. He had a hand in the moon landing. He had a signed thing from NASA and all oh, these wow. things. And it, I mean, it was amazing. He didn't. He was very soft spoken and didn't talk very much about it. So I don't know um, a lot of the the details. He probably couldn't. But aside from that, I I don't know of of any other. Yeah, it was really just your I was, thing. But it wasn't a shock. I don't think because I was always very outdoorsy and mm -hmm. um, I liked roughing it. I liked camping and being in nature, playing with every animal I could find, and um, it just. I was always fascinated by the outdoors and um, pushing myself in different ways. So it, it just fit, it fit really well. And your parents were cool with it and everything? They Yes, yes and no. I, my mom couldn't sign it. She had my dad do it. She's she like, did. I couldn't do it. I couldn't right. possibly do it. But they were extremely supportive and very proud. Like that's my ultimate goal, uh -huh. always to make my parents proud. And uh, they've always been supportive of my dreams and everything like that. Yeah. So You grew up in yeah. Ohio, right? Yes, yeah, uh -huh. North Central Ohio. So once you Don't sign you know. on the dotted line, like what happens? How does it um, work? Well, I was still in high school. I had to wait to graduate to go to basic training. And so you go off to basic training and- uh, Where'd you do that? It was Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And they kind of just break you down and build you back up, uh -huh. which is a wonderful experience. I almost feel like you get a huge, you get to start life steps further um, just based on knowing your personal limitations or or not knowing them or wondering if you even have them mm -hmm. at, at the end of it. You're like, is there nothing I can't push myself to do or, or something? I don't know. It equips you with all these skill sets right out of the gate. Um, you have to learn things very quickly and um, the leadership aspect, stepping up, and then the bonds you form in there, um, being kind of a, a team, you don't really recognize color in a way, except mm -hmm. for you wear green and you bleed red. And those are the only two colors that should matter. Yeah. And we're a unit and you you know, jump in front of a bullet for one another. It's this really cool bond foundation and camaraderie that you gain right right off the bat. You're introduced to all these things so yeah, early. I, mean, I think it's something that, that we don't really have in our culture with the exception of playing sports, which is, you know, a facsimile of that, but a situation in which the stakes are, you know, not nearly as high, of course. No, it gets intense with sport. It's a lot like sports. It's also a lot like I think the medical field, a pair, especially like paramedics, mm -hmm. nurses, doctor, the, the medical field is firemen. I've, firemen, police. It, there's a lot of similarities between those careers too. And you really bond quickly over intense situations. I think that's what makes that bond so solid and so profound is the intensity of the situations that right. you're in. And what is the boot camp experience like in, you know, my only point of reference is what I see in movies and TV, right? Is it like that? Is it? <laughs> you know, honestly, yeah, yeah. kind of, yeah, uh -huh. pretty much it. It really is there, uh, at least when I was in, it may have changed. I went to boot camp 2001 and uh, they get right in your face and scream. And uh, mm -hmm. now they can't, you know, maybe throw you to the ground and things like that or throw things at you, but uh, <laughs> they can sling some pretty harsh, you know, strings of right. words. What uh, what month? I mean, was it before or after September 11th? Oh, I joined, I joined prior to September 11th, shortly uh -huh. before. So I'd completed basic and everything. Uh, I was actually attending college when September 11th happened. And then right. I, uh, they, did the original or the initial infiltration the next year, 2003, 
2002-2003, I received a call to mm-hmm. that my unit was going to be activated. So. Right. So you're deployed to uh, Iraq. What? Yes. For Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yes, right? 2004. Uh huh. For 12 months. So explain to me that experience. Well, um, you grow up very quickly. I thought basic training shot me ahead, but I, I turned 21 over there. Um, so you just have to you have to figure things out really quickly, and it's it's actually amazing how fast you adjust to it, and mm-hmm. and how quickly the environment and the sounds and the smells all become kind of normal, and. Uh, it was an intense year. It definitely was. And what was a day in the life like when you were when you were deployed? It varied. It did vary drastically. I would say, um, on average, let's say when I maybe did guard duty um, or in the perimeter or something like that, it was twelve-hour shifts. Uh, I did the night shift, and and what's a shift like? What are you doing on a shift? You basically well, it's like a statics. It was like static security. You'd sit with the the M two four nine the squad automatic weapon and there was different sites you would use with the thermal things like that because it was night and you would just you know make sure everything is safe no mm-hmm. one's coming in and things like that and uh every day every day was different but the same but there was always like the the worry that either you would be killed or your friends would be so it was it was very high intensity mm-hmm. i think that's a lot of why we remember every second of it I think uh, when your sense, senses are all heightened, you absorb things differently. It's so permanent. Like I can't remember what I maybe did a week ago, but I remember, right? You know, like every single Cemented in your head detail. Of, right, right. So, um, but yeah, it was it was a very the year went by quickly, you know, and we spent so long downplaying it that I guess. We just kind of made made make light of the deployment sometimes when we get back almost and things because we don't really want to have to paint the picture for right. people sometimes. But as a almost a survival mechanism for yourself, right? To if you downplay it, then perhaps the toll it's taking on you isn't real. That is very or isn't true. as intense as what is actually happening. Yeah, it's like when you don't feel well, but you don't say anything, mm-hmm. and you can kind of control it or. It, you know, it doesn't become real. And then when you say something, it's like, okay, now I really don't feel all like uh, physically, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe that's uh, maybe that's part of the fear of talking about some of the things is we don't want some of the, maybe the things we're dealing with to be real. Or, uh, yeah, that's a really great way to look at it. That's, that's very right. true. And when you're there, I would imagine that you lost some colleagues, right? Yes, that was... Probably the probably the biggest factor for some of my issues is is the fact that we had to come home without everybody. Um, I was particularly close to one of the soldiers that was killed over there, and so there's definitely a an aspect of guilt that mm-hmm. you carry, and some days are probably heavier than others, I would say. And sometimes you don't think about it for a while, and then you'll see something and. You kind of, it really does, I think, build over time, which is a lot of, a big part of what led me to ultimately doing this right. cycling trip. I just, it was a combination of, do I deserve to be here or deserve good things mixed with feeling guilty about that because I'm not living and honoring my friend's sacrifice by 
isolating. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd began isolating quite a bit over the last decade, I would say. So yeah, and I want to really all tied in. I want to really understand um, PTSD and how it impacted you and what it's all about. But I think it would be. I'm still trying to understand what you had, what you endured while you were overseas, to help me kind of wrap my head around what it would be like to come home and live with that. Like, were you on patrols? Were you like on the front? Like, was there just constant bond? Like what, you know, paint me the picture of like the experience of being in Iraq at that moment. Yes, it it varies person to person. My, I think my biggest things are um, low, loud booms, I would say, because we would have you know mortars and mm-hmm. artillery and stuff come in um, almost daily, uh, close enough to where it would you know shake the buildings and things like that. On and the base. Yes, yeah. Um, I was at Camp Spiker near Tikrit, Iraq. Uh-huh. So, I anything that's kind of like a low boom, I just kind of pause because usually it would be it wouldn't just be one, and you would just kind of pause and listen and wait and stuff, and then you get mad at yourself because you're home and it's not it's not a mortar, Sarah. You know, like right. chill out. You know, and um, other things, like in particular, my rotation, it was one of the first rotations with women. And there was a million dollar bond on the head of any female soldier captured. Mm. And I, that we were kind of briefed on this, you know, when we got there. And so there's like an element of paranoia and, uh, and, and in the back of my mind, I think in the very back, because I, I loved everyone I served, I trusted them with my life. In the very back of your mind, it's like a million dollars is a lot of money too. Yeah. So it's Every like you don't you know. Every time you leave the base on patrol or whatever, you're the or high even value on there, just, Even on the base. Because I mean, we would have Iraqis come in and do certain tasks on there, right. in the base and everything. So is that Was that part of trying to train the Iraqi army so they could be self-sufficient or? Not when I was there, not where I was, it was more, kind of like different jobs around the base that they uh-huh. would do. So they they were definitely intermixed with us here right. and there. And uh And you're not you don't I mean conceivably they're they're cleared somehow to come on the base, but you're always right. questioning, you know, dual motives or whatnot. Yes, very much so. So mm-hmm. I think the hypervigilance and the that kind of level of paranoia I would say, well, it's it's kind of a strong I watch it kind of watch everything, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's another reason why yeah, like I just started staying like at home. You're super aware of everything all the time, which has to be, you know, it's exhausting. exhausting <laughs> that's a lot of you. why I stayed right. at, started staying at home a lot too. I just, I was just getting fatigued from from all of it, and uh, also, was there ever a moment where, you know, you were super in harm's way? Yes, there was one. Uh, a rocket, like a full rocket came into the camp and landed in the front yard of the building that I was typically and I was a street back at the time and it was it was like the loudest thing that I could wow. that I've ever heard. I mean mm-hmm. everyone people have taken roadside bombs right right next to them, you know, so that's that's different. But that rocket coming in, it didn't kill anybody. Miraculously it didn't fully detonate. So they had, you know, the the guys come in and disarm it and take it away and everything. But it came right in, there was a crater. I took a photo and video of it and everything. And mm-hmm. I was like, this is the building I work in. Here's, here's where the yeah. rocket came in. You know, it's and like it didn't right even there. Fully deploy, right? So what, what would, right. I mean, it had it then. I'm it trying to think the kill more... radius on it. It, it would have killed a lot. I think it, yeah. a lot of people had it fully detonated. It, 
it, but the crater itself was huge. It was just a little, the loudest thing ever. Right. <laughs> so I think that's where the, like the low loud booms kind of bother uh -huh. me and stuff like that. Does that so. still happen? Like if you pull up to a car that's playing a lot of bass? <laughs> no, no. Well, if, it's, like if I know or? what it is, it's fine. Uh -huh. I think it's just like- um, Surprise. It, as fast as possible, figuring out <laughs> yeah. what the sound is and what mm -hmm. it means and things like that. If you can make sense of what it is, it's like, okay, fine. And usually you can do that pretty quickly, right. you know, just things like that. But yeah, just, I guess it's it's really a combination of these types of things and then kind of missing it also, right. the intensity, the bond over there that you form and you, you hold with these people and then you come home and uh, I deployed with the National Guard unit, the combat engineers. And so when we got back, we kind of went to our respective units. I got pulled from my current unit to go with this other unit. So mm -hmm. I, I didn't know them, but I got to know them quickly and they mm -hmm. were awesome. It was a really well put together unit. And um, so we got home and then went our separate ways. And so you kind of lose touch a little bit too. And so I moved down to Nashville eight years ago and then I didn't see anybody I served with anymore. And so I also made the mistake of not becoming involved with organizations that were in place, like the VFW, American mm -hmm. Legion, AMVETS, uh, those sorts of things. I just didn't, I didn't do it. And I think a, a lot of us may, maybe make similar mistakes, just not right. continuing <clears throat> to try to. Did you have a sense that you were suffering from PTSD or were you trying to pretend that you weren't or did you think you were fine? Like when you first got back, mm -hmm. what was that, you know, emotionally, what did that feel like? Like, did you feel like you were in trouble and this needed to be dealt with or were you just trying to, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and move on with your life? I think, uh, I think it was both, but we didn't, it was a very quick out processing. Like, um, they're like, you, are you good? All right, cool. Are you good? Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So, and then we go home. I think I, I, I would like to believe I, I was fine and everything. I know I felt like maybe I, I didn't relate with, with people so much. And I also, you know, avoided questions, not because they were maybe too painful to answer or something like something like that, but it takes so much to, even paint the picture and then then go into the story or go into the right. experience, good or bad, really. And then you kind of only share some of those connections with the people that you were physically there with. And so if you don't see them all the time anymore, um, you start to feel kind of alienated. Yeah. And then you start, you know, I isolating. Mean, a big part of that is a normal reaction, right? Like if you're in a super intense situation and that and then it ends, there's gonna be, you know, an acclimation period to that. So the issue then becomes when does it tip over into a persistent trauma that is festering beneath the surface? You know, when you explain that, I keep thinking about that scene in the Hurt Locker where Jeremy Renner is like at the grocery store when he gets back and it's 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 very simple in its aesthetic, but it's so powerful because you realize like he like he's looking at products on the shelf and he just can't relate to anything because you know, he's used to a completely different way of living his life and now suddenly like overnight that's all mm -hmm. changed and he's supposed to just acclimate to normal civilian existence and of course that's you know, close to impossible for a lot of people I would imagine for yes. for anybody really. That, that aspect was very actually coming mm -hmm. back and waiting in line at a grocery store and people complaining about standing waiting in line or or like you said those kinds of little things it's like 
do you know how bad it could actually be? Like, do you have any idea how good you have it? Like those kinds of thoughts come in, I think, shortly after you get home or right mm -hmm. away. Um, I think they kind of fade as you get more used to those comforts again, but you kind of, cr and eventually you almost kind of crave having nothing again. That, that's another reason why th this bike trip was so amazing too, was um, the simple, simplicity, the lack of things, making something out of nothing, having that challenge. And, you know, I think that comfort and convenience leave very little room for appreciation. And you really realize um, what you do have. The, I think the less you have, the, the more you feel you have, or the more right. you're likely to give or something like that. There's something to that. Well, it's this weird, confusing soup, like, I imagine, because on the one hand, you have this sense of gratitude for how good we have it after mm -hmm. having an experience like that. And then at the same time, to be suffering, I would imagine, kind of enhances the feelings of confusion and guilt, right? Because you're like, it's so good, and I'm back here, and I'm safe, and everything's fine, so why do I feel terrible? Right, or I, I think one of my biggest problems that I was facing regularly was, why am I here and my friends aren't? that kind of thing, or it should have been me, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to have been deployed to combat or even be a military veteran to understand that. That happens, you know, um, that can happen to anyone anytime, losing someone and that survivor's guilt, they call it. Um, but that was a huge factor for me, was, right. the, was the guilt of coming home without, that we lost three, so. Yeah, so when you come back, is there a process by which you are funneled through like the Veterans Administration to have you checked out to make sure that you're mentally sound? Like, how does all of that work? And how do so many people fall through, fall through the cracks? Like, what is not working? What's broken? And, you know, what, what would you fix if you could? Well, I think ultimately, I think it comes down to the person being forthcoming with some of the problems. But we don't tend to do that, yeah. and I know I trained I'm to, to trained not to complain. You yeah. know, yes, yeah, definitely. And so I think that they have a system in place, but maybe it's not as persistent. Um, you know, it, if you have a conversation with a, a veteran, it sometimes it takes a, a, several of those interactions to even scratch the surface of maybe what they're thinking or feeling, especially if maybe they, they feel like they could have done more or should have done more. Mm -hmm. That's the last thing they want people to know about is um, they don't want to be judged for not having done more severe things, let alone have someone know that they, that they feel these, uh, that they have these issues based on having not, or done, not done as much as they feel they should or could have, which is almost never the case. They, we all do everything we can we follow orders we you know to the best of our ability we would never want to come home without anybody and but yeah that the guilt aspect i think exists in in every combat vet that has been deployed with a unit that comes mm -hmm. home without somebody mm -hmm. from every war you know that's across the board a, an issue yeah well the statistics are are pretty shocking Every day, 22 vets take their lives. I mean, it's so incredibly disheartening to hear that. And as somebody who has no military experience, my only basis of understanding is, is what I read in the news or what I kind of, you know, come across here and there. And my sense, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, 
the Veterans Administration is overwhelmed. There's too many people. It's not adequately staffed. And soldiers either don't avail themselves of those services or those services become, they're unavailable or they have to wait forever to get an appointment. Um, and because they're overwhelmed, it's very much a, you know, a, a way of just getting prescribed medication. So you have all of these veterans who are over-medicated um, walking around that then contributes to this opioid crisis that we're experiencing right now without really getting to the root cause or a healthy protocol for crawling out of this hole that so many people are, are you know, experiencing. Yes, I, it is. Uh, I mean, it's it comes down to either or it's mainly two things. It's individual responsibility to seek the help and then um, having everything in place just so mm -hmm. to facilitate the, the help needed. So I mean, do they have therapists and things like that? that yes, you can, yes, mm -hmm. they do. The, and how many people actually uh, take advantage of that? No, I'm not sure about that. I know that I personally went, the VA has, I mean, they have psychologists, psychiatrists. I I was never really into the the one-on-one -on -one kind of counseling. It's, sometimes it's difficult for me to funnel my thoughts into words and everything and um, like paint that picture like uh -huh. I mentioned. And so, I I rather kind of hang. I think it's the most helpful thing is to be around other veterans and socialize with other veterans. But um, that if you're isolating, that's not possible. But back to the VA, they they do have that in place. They have counselors and a whole network of of help for that. So mm -hmm. it, while they do prescribe, they are they're I think quick to prescribe. You know the maybe pain medication or uh, like the mood lightener type of medications and right. everything like that. They also have all the other options in place too. They even have activities you can do, uh, but that, that's there. I think it. it's really, for me, it was going, actually going there and admitting or that I'm mm -hmm. doing these things, feeling all, all these things and all that. I didn't wanna, cause it becomes real, like you said earlier. Yeah, because you know, if, if you admit just... it, then you actually have to confront it. Right, and then there's labels on stuff and there's categories. I didn't want to be lumped into something. It's like, mm -hmm. no, I got this. You know, I totally, I'm totally in control. And that that control just sometimes it just sneaks out, sneaks away from you. Mm -hmm. And then you know, kind of a darkness kind of swoops in here and there. And yeah, that's kind of what was happening to me and what did happen, which is another big reason I. I kind of left on my, my journey. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, my sense is that there are a lot of veterans who, because they're trained to compartmentalize and, and sort of, you know, just take care of business, it makes it less likely that they're going to seek that help. And, you know, as you know, the longer you try to repress that kind of trauma, it's going to come out sideways one way or the other. It's either going to come in the form of depression or suicidal ideation or domestic violence or drug addiction or alcoholism. Like it, it will manifest at some point. And in your case, I mean, the gestation period was quite a long period of time. It's not like you, you know, wrestled with this right away. I mean, you just did your bike trip. You were deployed in 2003. I mean, it's been, you know, quite a journey for you to come get to this place. I didn't really, actually, I didn't think I was wrestling with it. Like you said, that mm. the, 
I called my journey a vicious cycle because obviously it's a bicycle, but right. there's been it's these a great other. Name, by the way. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Well, it's like there, you know, there's all these other meanings that I've been through some vicious cycles, and um, I, it was a mixture of maybe some, you know bad decisions and really good decisions that didn't feel like fulfilling enough or feel like enough. And, what do you uh, mean by that? Now the when I when I first got back, basically I began eating emotionally eating i would say and i i totally abused food i really did when i when i got out of the service in 2009 i just it became kind of an answer to everything you know it wasn't it wasn't drugs i, I drank a bit but it was the, the food mm. i mean i equated it with every emotion mm-hmm. and uh it was my punishment my reward is everything and i i gained 100 pounds uh, after i got out I read that that's crazy and uh <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was, that was definitely part of it is I was this strong, capable machine of a person. How, and how could I let this happen? And it just spiraled down so fast. Now that I, I got a grip on, mm-hmm. I met another combat veteran. She owned a gym and she helped me lose, you know, her workouts were basically boot camp. Uh, they were boot camp. Right. <laughs> and I, I lost that, the 100 pounds in a year in 2012. By working out and just eating right and taking care of yourself. So you had, you know, enough sense about you to address that situation. What was going on inside, like emotionally? Um, When I, when I became heavier, took control of it, like, or just. Um, Both. I guess I didn't, part of it was I didn't have to, I had the accountability wasn't in place anymore. Um, I had, my neck started hurting about halfway through my deployment. I started getting these kind of shooting pains up the back of my head. And so it worsened more and more. My knees were pretty banged up from wear and tear and those were worsening too. What caused the neck pain? It wasn't an ice like an isolated incident. It was just I don't know if it was like the Kevlar the bouncing. It just became really painful like halfway through and then I didn't I got some some help while I was over there, but really I didn't complain too much about it. And eventually it had become worse. I was encouraged to talk about it with my leadership and everything. And so they did an eval and ended up marking me non-deployable. Mm. So I wasn't even able to deploy with my unit again. That's why you never, you didn't go back for a second tour. Right, right. Mm. I ended up getting, I would have been a lifer. I loved the military. Yeah. It's, I, I've said before, it's, it's the one thing that's ever made complete sense in my life. And it's been very difficult to try to fill that gap since getting out. Cause I really uh-huh. did love it. It was definitely my calling. Well, I felt- and your life's very regimented. They tell you where to go and everything is very structured mm-hmm. for you. You don't have to really do too much of your own <laughs> yeah. thinking. Here's what you eat. <laughs> they don't encourage a lot of that, do they? No, yeah. no, uh-huh. no. <laughs> and so um, it's highly discouraged in fact, yeah. but no, but I, I got out, I didn't have the accountability in place and uh, it was, it's such a normal social thing to do is eat, mm-hmm. you know, but you can't hide it forever like some other things It you know, you can visually tell up. someone's got some problems. Yeah, and the weird that. thing is that you're somebody who was trained to be super disciplined, mm-hmm. right? And you're all about that. And capable. Living in a very regimented way. And then that just falls apart. Mm-hmm. I was, I was supposed to be very capable and strong. You know, it was never about being some it wasn't ever a superficial or reason for being in shape. It was like, you're supposed to be able to do these things mm-hmm. and do these things when needed, 
and help others and keep others safe. And so I let that go and I just got really down on myself, obviously. And then yeah. it's, I kept, you know, in as a reaction to being down, it was food, food. So, right. But um, yeah, like you said, I just, I did those like a high intensity full body workout five days a week and just ate really clean. You know, right. no sugar, lower carb. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Lose the 100 pounds. It takes like a year, so you did it right. You've kept it mm. off. Um, for the most part. For the most well, <laughs> You look great. Oh. Uh, the, but the interesting thing is that that didn't that didn't necessarily solve your pro, your your major malfunction, which is right. addressing the underlying trauma. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, I'm sure it elevated your mood and helped you in many different ways, but it wasn't necessarily a cure to the main thing that you were contending with that was driving the emotional eating to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I just it was that lack of fulfillment. I think that sense of purpose that I gained from serving just it. I couldn't achieve it mm-hmm. anymore. And I, I started a photography business in 2005 when I was still in Ohio and I continued it to Nashville and I, I had that and it was it's going fine too. Mm-hmm. I still do it, I, I love it, you know? And I like bringing that joy to people, you know, capturing their moments and everything. And part of me is like, you never know when you're gonna lose someone. It's really important to get these photos for these people so that makes me do better at my job also. Um, it's kind of a morbid angle because you never know when you'll lose someone, but photography became very important to me. And it was a great outlet, a healthy outlet, just uh-huh. like working out. And um, I just, it after a while, it just, my passion was dwindling from these things. Working out became a passion. And um, I actually, the reason I had to kind of stop working out is I had I had to have a major surgery in 2016 and so right this is like a big deal it, though explain it can't you tell oh, me sorry. Please, i downplay explain everything the, yeah i know come on we got time here <laughs> well, i know. want to hear the details we kind of glossed you sure? over your deployment too like no tell us what it was really like like i, I know mm-hmm. you get you were you were diagnosed with a grapefruit sized cyst in your ovaries right like yes that's no small thing it was yeah it was uh it was huge so but it was attached to one of my ovaries and they, there was also a cancer scare involved. And so they said the best case scenario, the best case scenario I would lose an ovary. The worst case is I do have cancer that have to do a, a full hysterectomy and then remove part of the lining of like my heart and lung or something like that. It, it was really, it was like so drastic. I had to sign off on all these different scenarios, but um, this was Thanksgiving in 2016. And so I was in, I was in really great shape then. And uh, I was helping other people lose weight. I, I'd, and my accountability was being there for others than helping them, mm-hmm. which was really important to me. I was helping others again. 
And um, so I had this surgery. I had to, as soon as they found it, I had to stop working out right away. If it had ruptured, it could have been life-threatening. So right. I had this major surgery and uh, the recovery, I have like a huge scar. I mean, the recovery was, is I think when everything kind of came to a head because I, I'd lost all that weight. I felt like I was in a pretty good place. I was helping other people break out of their own prison, you know, because being heavy is a physical mm-hmm. and mental prison. It really is. You're just trapped in your own body. And it was really nice to play a part in helping others with that. So I felt like I was giving back and helping in that way. And then I couldn't do that. And then the recovery was very long. I couldn't set up in bed by myself for a while. I mean, it was just, I just yeah. felt completely defeated. Like, why am I even try? It's like, am I going to start at square one again? You know, do I really want to? You know, you just kind of talk yourself out of life, I guess. You, what is that connection between PTSD and, and hopelessness? Um, I think just that kind of a has-been mentality in a way where you were this, you almost felt like a god or something. Like you could do anything, like nothing could stop you. And um, you felt like you were really doing something important. You were making a real difference. And then once you don't have that, it, it takes so much to achieve those things in your head. And once you don't really have that anymore, you it happens kind of quickly where you just, oh, I can't do this now. And so I'll become less active. And then, oh, my body hurts more because I don't have my muscle base. And then I'm depressed because I'm in pain. And then... uh you just go vi- down it's a vicious very cycle quick. right yeah yeah, yeah really mm-hmm. it really is so you, it happens it's this downward spiral it happens very quickly right. before you know it you're talking yourself out of having even people that are you don't want to also you don't really want to bother anybody with any of this stuff because right. you do think you can handle it yourself at first and then when you think there's a problem it's like no i'm supposed to be strong for others i'm supposed to be the rock and pull others over their walls and i'm good at it you know, like we're good at being strong for other people. And so when it comes down to helping ourselves or, or spending the time on ourselves, I think it gets trickier there. Yeah, We're not as good at that, I think. At least yeah. I wasn't. And to not have that, that bond, that connection, that camaraderie mm-hmm. when you return. I mean, there's nothing, you know, you can go to the gym and help other people lose weight, but it's still, it's not the same. And then you pick a career that essentially has you kind of doing your own thing by yourself, right? Like you go and you shoot pictures of other people, but mm-hmm. ultimately you're, it's like a solo business person situation. So you're not in a member of a team. You're not, you know, it's almost like, uh, and, and, and the sense I have is that you're lacking that connection, but rather than seeking it out in a healthy way, you're doing the opposite, like you're isolating further and further and further, which is only exacerbating the condition. Yes, and then instead of helping or making a difference anymore, you're letting people down by coming up with reasons to not uh, get together with them or not answering really messages as often, things Mm -hmm. like that. So then there's guilt compiles. Um, I think that was the biggest factor for me was is this underlying guilt and then this building uh-huh. guilt were the people that. were there people in your life who were saying hey uh sarah you know i think there's something going on here that you need to deal with or no, no one everyone knew. was like no one you knew. were fine mm-hmm. 
Yeah, wow. I uh, I had that on lock. Even when I, you even when you gained a hundred pounds. Now that I well, I dressed really well to hide yeah. it, <laughs> but uh-huh. um, I, I thought I was just this master of disguise, and um, a few people said something, but it was usually things that would make me just go eat more, like. Uh, or they've asked, you know, have you gained weight? I'm like, you already know the answer yeah. to that question, uh-huh. you know. So I'm gonna go get Taco Bell and. But your parents weren't worried about you, or I think maybe it just people didn't want to hurt my feelings or something too. Uh-huh. But they may have made a comment or two, and I of course talked my way out of anything being wrong, or I didn't, just didn't want them to worry. And but it was really did con- get. Was there a conscious awareness that you were trying to mask something, or did you really believe that you were fine? No, no, I I actually was, I, maybe in the back of my mind, I thought to myself, if I eat enough, then I maybe it'll it'll kill me or something. Maybe, uh, and it almost, I my cholesterol was in the high 280s or something like that. It got pretty wow. out of control with mm-hmm. my health. And, um, and you're in like your 20s, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, I was 27, 28, 29, and that's pretty young, so. But I don't, I'm really glad that I, I caught it. I think it's it came down to meeting the right people too. If I hadn't met my friend slash trainer, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd be here. Right. You know, I might've had a stroke or heart attack like they projected within five years. They but said, your doctor so. was telling you to get it under control. Well, I wasn't going to a doctor. Oh, you weren't? I hadn't been to a doctor in probably seven or eight years or so what was like the that. impulse to seek out the trainer like how did that begin how we, did you we go met, from uh, we, go we, we met on a whim um in a parking lot and uh so, someone had been bothering her and i was staying with her while she waited for the police to come and that's how we met uh, and so we got to talking she said she was a combat vet and i was like no way me too and and I was like, uh, oh, she said she owned a gym. She knew that I was not happy as a veteran who was that size. And she reached out. She's like, I have a gym here and I help people all the time. Um, I used to be in the 300s myself, which was huge because mm. she under- really understood the, the that prison I mentioned. Mm. And um, so, and she was a veteran. And that's, it, it just came out, it came down to meeting the right person and letting them help, letting them, Right. Help me save myself. That, that bond, which that is connection. also a big factor in the the bicycle trip too, is the letting people encourage you and support you and right being a, open like, about stuff. Yeah, like first, like being willing to raise your hand and say, "I need help," not just asking right. for help, but also being willing to receive it when it's being offered. Right? Which yes. Is very difficult. Yes. Usually, it's a dismissive kind of a downplay. I got it. I'm I'm fine. How are you? Like, how can right. I help you? Deflecting. Yes, very much so. Which that that is all I really want to do is is better other people. Like that's when I feel the best is when I'm bettering others. Yeah, I would say. Which that was a huge thing that was missing in my in my life. I think mm-hmm. making huge differences for people. Do you think that had you not been diagnosed with the cyst and you would just continue to train and help people in the gym that uh, that you would have been okay, or do you think that you were still not really getting at the core issue. Like it would have manifested one way or the other, but the cyst kind of, that situation and being where you were really compelled, forced to stop and be with yourself and be unable to distract yourself with external things like going to the gym really forced you to confront it in a way that maybe would have taken a lot longer. 
had, I think had that so. not occurred. I think so. It was a, a blessing and a curse yeah, that it's it like happened. A, a, I like think. almost like a gift, right? It, in a lot of ways, yeah. If it, well, n- sitting here now and looking back, yeah, it definitely was. Um, I think I was confusing hap- maybe happinesses with distractions. Um, you know, I would go to the gym and forget everything, and it was wonderful. And then I wouldn't sleep at night or something like that. Um, so I think this kind of forced me to want to try to live again. Um, because I did have, you know, the cancer scare and all the, it's such a scary word anyway. There wasn't any present, by the way, I forgot right. to mention. That was a huge relief. Yeah, your surgery but, went fine. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. It was better than the best case scenario. They didn't have to remove anything but the cyst. So I guess things got kind of bad when I realized that I might not have the option of having kids. I've always been on the fence anyway, but it's nice to have the option. And um, I don't know, it all just came together and I guess this kind of having the surgery and going through that took me to a bit of a breaking point there because it got kind of dark right right up until the surgery so what what was the lowest moment the darkest day i think um i think it was probably it was probably it was the day right before i bought my bicycle right before i bought the bicycle and uh I just, I knew after the surgery, I'd be limited. My my neck had gotten bad, my knees, I felt like I'd have to start all over. I had no muscle base anymore for, mm-hmm. cause that's when I'm not really in pain is when I have the muscle in place. And I guess I just, the photography was great, but I just didn't think I'd ever achieve that sense of fulfillment again. And now I can't even go to the gym and have that outlet anymore. I just felt like I just didn't even, I'm just not capable of of anything anymore. Yeah. Was it depression? Was there suicidal ideation? Was there, you know, what was the mindset? There, yes, I, I definitely was. I guess I, I can say that I, I was fantasizing about it. And uh, that evening was probably the, the closest I'd ever come in my head to to an attempt. I hadn't attempted suicide prior. And uh, I just decided that that I can't do that to my, I've lucked out with very loving family and um, I couldn't do that to my parents. So. But even in that moment, you didn't have friends or family around that had a sense that you were going sideways. No, no one really knew I was going through any of this yeah. until I, I made a Facebook post about it. and just was a little more vocal about some of the stuff I was going through. What did you say in that? Um, Basically, I said a lot of the things I've I've said here. Um, I expressed and explained that since getting out of the military, it feels like I've kind of lived a whole lifetime and there's really nothing left to do. That's kind of where I'd arrived in my mind. I said that uh, I've had these nagging, gnawing thoughts that I'm really only living life to fulfill some sort of obligation to the people that love me and mm. nothing more. And I felt so guilty about saying that because everybody that cares for me is probably like, you know, we were, I thought she has a great time with me. I could have done or said something differently. And usually people end up thinking that after it's too late. That's why I decided I need to get this post out there. And yeah. um, the reason I waited is because I 
the bike trip was already in motion. I was like, here's what I'm doing about it. Cause I didn't want to just come out and say oh, right. all so the you, negatives. Okay, gotcha. So you post, you went public with it after you were already kind of well into the solution. Yes. I wanted to have a game plan so people knew. I didn't want people to worry. I never want anyone to worry about me. That's uh-huh. the thing. And so that's why I've kind of mastered this. this. So there's a lot that happens behind a smile, really in anybody, you know, and um, I've gotten pretty good at, I, lo- I make people laugh. Like that's my thing. I love making people are sure people are having a good time and that they're safe around me. But um, I made that post and then I described the the plan for the journey and the support was unbelievable. It wasn't like I expected it would be like private messages. You know, you're in my thoughts and uh, if there's anything I can do, you know, stuff like that. People were like, this is amazing. I'm sharing this and maybe other veterans will kind of decide to do yeah. something yeah. about it or just try to take back some of that purpose for themselves, try to take on a challenge. Well, so when you're in that moment, you were in that darkest, you know, that darkest moment, what was it that clicked inside of you to do something about it? Like take me from that moment to the moment of deciding that you're gonna you know, get a bike and ride a bike and how this whole ride came together. Yes, I, I'd been planning the trip with a friend, a friend I met through a mutual friend, a Marine, and we talked about, but I hadn't purchased my bicycle yet. And I was still really struggling and on the fence about you know, actually going through with it. And I had an evening where I just, I just tend to stare at the wall sometimes for a while and think about big stuff or just anything really. And I get kind of lost in some of that. And I think I just convinced myself that I think people would be okay. And that basically it goes back to coming home without my friend. Just, mm-hmm. I don't know if I deserve to be here. And I'm not even taking advantage of the life that has been gifted to me because of someone else's sacrifice. And it just really gnaws, gnaws at me. It still does, but it's better having you know completed this. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I had kind of a, a game plan for if I'd gone through with with taking my life and everything. And it was a bit elaborate, but it was kind of like the least, one of the, maybe the least shocking kind of ways. I just didn't want to hurt anyone per, or scar anybody, Yeah, you know? So um, that night I was, I was, I was right there. I'll say I was like right there. And I ended up just falling asleep. And so the next day I was like, that's it. That's, I can't do one more night like that. I'm not gonna get through it. I'm not gonna get through it. So I literally just woke up and went and purchased my bicycle the next day. Went right to the bike store. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you had had, so the plan was, the, the plan was already in motion to do a ride prior to that. You just hadn't taken any action on it yet. Right. I. Purchasing yeah. the bicycle was like the the decision, like that's a decision maker. And had you been a cyclist? Like, had you ridden a bike before? No, not no. well, not since ninth grade. Like other than just being a kid around no, the neighborhood. Then no, grade yeah, school yeah. was the last time I'd ridden a bicycle. So, but it comes right back. 
uh-huh. really does. It, I, you, I took the bicycle. For, <laughs> the adage is true. Once uh, yeah, you learn how to ride a like bike. Like riding a bike and yeah. everyone would say it and I'd be like, uh-huh. uh-huh. And then I got on it and I'm like, okay, that's why that exists. It, it really does come right back. And um, so I took, I got a uh, Kona Sutra, a steel frame Kona Sutra mm-hmm. from a bike shop in Nashville called Halcyon. And I went in a few times, didn't take it on a test ride. I was honestly, I was nervous, but I didn't want them to know. I was like, no, I can't, I don't really have time right now. I was just kind of looking around and I was like, I'm gonna fall. Like I I, I didn't really? want to embarrass myself. It's intimidating to go in a, into a bike shop when you don't really know what's going on. I remember yes. the first time I did that. Yeah, it's 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 weird because you think everyone's an expert and they're gonna like, you know, if you, you're afraid to ask a stupid question or whatever. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I mess up all the time and make fun of myself all the time, but I, I don't want to like sound stupid. I mean, no right. one wants to sound stupid. But was but. the idea you were going to ride across the United States already? So, okay. So mm-hmm. you, there was this grand vision. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. I just needed to get the bike, buy that bike. Right. Yeah. So I went in and talked with one of the owners and she's like, do you want me to go on a test ride with you? And uh, cause she, I think she could tell I was really hesitant about trying it. Uh-huh. And so we we did, we got on the bicycles and started going down the street and it, it felt unbelievable. It was like unbelievable. The, the wind and the work and all those feelings. I was like, this is, this is great. I can do this. Not only is this fun or whatever, but I can physically, I feel like I can really physically do this. That was mm-hmm. a huge fear of mine was do I start out on this and then my physical limitations? I don't want to fail at anything and I don't want to commit to yeah, something. You did boot camp, you could do it. Well, oh, I except know, but- Except with me with the injuries and the pain and stuff. Yes, yes, yeah. with the, cause I've had wor- chronic wor- like worsening pain over the years. So it's it's worsening. I've, you know, I've been to the VA for uh, MRIs and things like that. So they're working with me on trying to yeah. help it, but it's been diagnosed as chronic pain that's that has worsened over the years, uh-huh. unfortunately. So like hiking or really long ter- distance hiking and everything, I, I just can't. Yeah. Or, or carrying a on, backpack for a long prescribed, time. prescribed like pain mats for that? They offered, I uh, I made it a point to not do the narcotics, yeah. but they- Did they offer you like Oxy? What um, did they offer you? I believe it was yeah. Oxycodone, but I, I asked specifically not for a narcotic and they they gave me like 200, 300 ibuprofen, 800 milligram mm-hmm. ibuprofen, which yeah, like I just- the hardcore ibuprofen. Yes, yeah. like the highest one you can get. And I only take it when I absolutely have to because mm-hmm. I like to know what's going on with my body too. So I try not to do really pain meds because I will overdo it. As soon as I don't feel pain, it's like, I feel like superwoman. Yeah. Like I just want to bust through every wall I can find, <laughs> but- and yeah. what did, did did they ever were you ever prescribed like SSRIs like an antidepressant medication? Uh Cymbalta. Uh-huh. Cymbalta. And I d- actually didn't start taking it. I went left on the bike trip instead. Yeah. And that was a really good choice, I think. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It, it uh-huh. is supposed to help with nerve pain and chronic pain too. Mm. So it made sense that they prescribed it. I just once I was out there I was I felt wonderful. Freedom. Uh, Yes, yeah. Everything about the journey was incredible. So you go out on this test ride and then you come back and you're like, all right, I'm buying this. <laughs> like, how did that work? That's exactly yeah. what happened. <laughs> we went out, um, we just did some road cycling and I I got ahead of her real quick. Cause I was starting, honestly, I was starting to tear up. I was so happy of that I could do it. 
Mm. You know, not only just with the balance aspect, but my knees didn't hurt. I mean, it was only, you know, a half a mile, but my knees didn't hurt at all. And um, the way I had it positioned where the seat was slightly lower, my, my neck really didn't hurt because I wasn't real hunched, you know, like um, right. like I'm supposed to be, but I had to make some modifications to my bicycle for my neck. And um, I was just excited. It's like, I, I really believe I can do this. Yeah. And then I bought that thing. I was like, this is happening. <laughs> and how long after you bought it, did the ride begin? Less than a month. Uh huh. Yes, I, I really only trained for about three weeks. Right. And um, by train, I mean like <laughs> unweighted 10 mile rides. Uh-huh. I was like, yeah, this, you know, this is a cool, I did a 50 miler on, it's called the Natchez Trace Parkway near uh, south of Nashville. But Nashville has this, uh, the Music City Bikeway. It's uh, it's like 30 miles long. It goes through all the, a lot of the parks. It's uh-huh. beautiful. So I went out there and that's how I trained. I just rode, rode my bike right, and right, right. got used to it. And did but, you get like the panniers and all that? The idea is you're gonna bring all your stuff, right? Right, yep. Yeah. It was a self-supported run. And the, this is how little experience I had. I have always and still call them panniers okay. all the time. They're, pan, they're panniers. Yeah, that's uh-huh. what I said, panniers. It's, I have a hilariously small amount of experience, you know, which mm-hmm. any, that's a huge factor is that anyone can do what, really what I did. Honest to God, anyone can do what I did, especially after coming out of a major surgery, having the physical pain, mm-hmm. no experience whatsoever. It's just basically no training. No, no, no training or experience. Three weeks beforehand, you hadn't ridden a bike since you were ten years old. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, ninth grade. I don't ninth know. Whatever, whatever that is. Yeah. A long time a long ago, time, like right. a lifetime ago, yeah. several lifetimes ago. And and <laughs> did you get like a tent and everything? Like you just basically can't. You're gonna camp along the way and just. Did you plot like spend a lot of time figuring out the route and where you wanted to go and the route was already preset. It's a route by the Adventure Cycling Association. It's uh-huh. called the Trans America Trail, and. Um, it originally goes from Yorktown, Virginia to Astoria, Oregon, but in Pueblo, Colorado, um, it branches off. You can take what's called the Western Express, which is what I did. Uh, that takes you to San Francisco. Yes, uh-huh. yeah. I really wanted to cross the Golden Gate for the finish. I just thought it'd be really symbolic. I'd never been there, just crossing bridges and new beginnings and that, that whole mindset. Um, yeah. And when you embarked upon this, did you have a sense that this was going to be a mission, not just for yourself, but to you know connect with veterans along the way and try to be you know available and of assistance. Or did that develop over time? Because you kind of had two bites at this apple, right? Which yes. we'll get into. Yes, the um, a huge part of it was honoring the friends I lost overseas, and uh, definitely post-war healing for me. I needed to do something. It was kind of a bit of a Hail Mary trip, you know. I was kind of at my rock bottom. I, I believe it was my rock bottom. Uh, I think I was starting to feel some of the things that some of my friends had been feeling, and I'd lost a couple of friends to suicide also. So, um, and it was definitely, I wanted to not only help myself, but help others in different ways. I wanted to be a little more vocal about some of the, stuff I was dealing with and I just, I didn't think there was any way I could be alone in it, you know? And then just the fact that I'd lost friends to suicide, I wanted to talk more about that too, Mm -hmm. because I understood that downward spiral and the darkness and how it just Mm -hmm. swoops in and sweeps you off your feet. Yeah. 
Well, what's interesting about that is that typically people that embark upon these kind of uh, adventures they're you know they had their lowest moment or their darkest moment and then there's the healing period and then they become whole and then they decide okay now I'm gonna share it whether that means riding their bike across the country or starting a nonprofit or whatever um, there's kind of a, a you know that there's a period of time that elapses in between those two things and for you they're like right on top of each other Right? Yes. Like, so you're very <laughs> close to doing. that dark moment, but you're already like, you're not like just in the solution. You're already, you're already in the advocacy um, role as well at the same time. Yes. The, the darkness and the light kind of, it was, it was going to be one or the other when I bought that bicycle and I chose to do the bicycle thing. And, and so I, I posted on Facebook about it and then I documented it as I went, made it public. Mm -hmm. I liked the added pressure of people following and it fueled me the support and uh, encouragement and everything. Um, I mean, yeah, some people, I've, sure there's like doubters and stuff or like, but that's that's totally fine. That's happened to me my whole life. I I encourage it. Yeah. Like, no, it's fine. Just, yeah, so you just sit back, relax and enjoy. And you know? you're posting on Facebook and you're very public about this. Um, so, Tell me about some of the experiences that you had um, connecting with veterans along the way. Um, they, there were many veterans I ran into, and it was amazing. And none of, almost none of them were planned. And almost, so it wasn't like I'm going to go to this VFW and 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 they know I'm coming and I'm going to talk to them and there's going to they're waiting for me. There, there. I wanted to go to more VFWs. There weren't a lot on the route, mm -hmm. so I was able to go to some, and they were awesome. They didn't really know I was coming. I didn't really broadcast it in that way. I was just, I kind of wanted it to be a little more private, but also let people in on it, kind of a thing, rather mm -hmm. than the big spotlight thing, because I'm actually really not used to that sort of thing, you know, because I am a private person, and so um, I guess I sought out veterans in in the towns I would go through. How did you find them? It just happened. It just, I, like yeah, literally, yeah. Uh -huh. I have countless experiences with veterans. I have to write about them all. I, I included a bunch in my blog, but there's so many more than that. They were, for us being such a small percent of the population, it felt like we were just everywhere. It's almost like they found me or something. Like I needed, I needed to find them and vice versa or something. It uh -huh. just, it really was that random. And which I think made it, way more beautiful and special and uh having it unplanned i think resulted in maybe a deeper connection with it being so spontaneous right. and and tell me about what it's you know what transpires when you make that connection like how is that um how and why is that healing not just for you but for the other person i i think once you discover that each other is a veteran you kind of start in this this different place, I think, um, where you get to skip past a bunch of stuff. And like the small talk thing, or sometimes it takes people years to get kind of close like that. And you can just almost dive into each other. You don't have to skim the surface. You just dive into the conversation. You, you could just start making fun of each other. You could pick on it. You know each other has mm -hmm. the same sense of humor, um, similar mindsets. I think a lot of us share the same qualities when we join, like wanting to the selfless service and the and all that sort of aspect in there. So you already kind of know 
who the person is deep down a little bit and then you can build from from there mm -hmm. and the sense of humor really is the best part i mean sitting there for a half hour and joking on each other is, is therapy like i love that yeah. stuff So it wasn't necessarily about making a point of bringing up PTSD as it was just organically connecting with these people. The the topic almost always got brought up. And if it didn't, I, you know, I tried to talk about some of the stuff I was going through and why I was doing what I was doing. Um, I always made it a point to, because really I, more than anything, I was asked like, what are you doing? Why? And right. then of course, and if it didn't, I would, I would go into it eventually after letting them speak. And so what also. did you say? I mean, what is the response of that? Like I'm dealing with PTSD and I was at a very dark moment and now I'm doing this to try to reclaim my life. Right. That's, that's basically what I would say. I, I explained that it had kind of come to a head, some of the guilt and depression and some of the things um, I needed to do something to kind of proved to myself that I wanted and, and deserved to be here. Um, I needed a new, a big challenge to prove I was still capable of something like this. And it was very important to me to to honor the friends I lost by living mm -hmm. instead of isolating and not wanting to be here. And then having lost friends to suicide, um, knowing that there's 22 a day that are doing this and that I was so close myself, it was kind of a te like a personal intimate testimony to to that too. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't know that we were losing 22 veterans a day. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's it's so many. I mean, you fight so hard to get back and um I would describe it as the the war inside is just totally different than the ones we were trained to win. Yeah, very uh very well trained to fight the war without, not so well trained to combat the war within. And the war within doesn't go away until it's mm -mm. confronted, does it? No, and you can you can beat it to death here in your own head. You can fuel it within mm -hmm. seconds, over weeks, without knowing. Well, all those just... skills that you learn in the military work across purposes with what what's required of you to actually get to the other side, mm -hmm. right? So that has to be confusing. It can be. There's definitely an internal conflict that the light and the darkness and what to say, what not to say, who you want to let in and in what ways. And I don't know, but on the trip, the more, one of the biggest factors for my he, for my personal healing was talking to other veterans. And I think that really is like one of the biggest things we can do for ourselves is to seek out other veterans, spend time, mm -hmm. whatever that entails. Like I said, you could just make fun of each other and that's therapy sometimes, you know? Yeah, I mean, so. I'm, I'm somebody who's in long, I've been in recovery for a long time and, you know, a core aspect of that is getting together with other, you know, alcoholics and, and, and addicts and you have that shorthand and there's that community and there's that connectivity and that accountability that helps people not just get sober, but but stay sober and that's, like the most important community to me and my long-term well-being. Without that, I don't know if I would be here. So why would it be any different for what you're going through and what's required for you to heal and to help others heal? 
Yes, there's a lot of people bond, I think, through struggle and tragedy more powerfully than anything, mm-hmm. I, I think. And you have a collective um, experience that a lot of people can't relate to, you know, that only you truly understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even more so, it, it does come down to individual veterans too, and their struggles and issues vary person to person, which is why it's hard to decipher a one solution to all this you know so um, yeah it all gets thrown under the umbrella of ptsd but you you know you could be uh you know somebody who suffered um a sexual abuse situation or childhood abuse or you could have you know been on a deployment where your best friend gets blown up by an you know an ied or something like that like those all fall under that umbrella, but those are all very different things. They're all traumas, mm-hmm. but I would imagine you know the specifics are important in terms of how you move forward. Right? Yeah, the experiences are all very. They all vary, and it's almost like uh, different wounds, similar scars. And uh, I don't know when you get around people that you've been through something similar with, so much can go unspoken. Like you don't have to right. dive into the the darkest things to relate. And um, especially if you don't focus on comparing, if you focus on relating mm-hmm. and listening. What were uh, some of the more uh, profound or impactful encounters that you had with veterans along the way? Like are there are a particular one that stands out? Yes, there are, there's several actually. And I would say specifically Vietnam veterans, um, the insight I gained from them was mind blowing. They've been dealing with things a lot longer and they didn't stop fighting when they came home. Like when they mm-hmm. got back, I mean, I can't imagine that. Well, I got a welcome home ceremony, you know? Um, I can't imagine going through something like that and then coming back to that. And uh, they worked so hard to pave the way for my generation of combat veterans. And so, basically the consensus is it doesn't get any easier you just need to figure out ways to deal with it and not not tough it out but just know that it probably or or might not get easier and have that in mind and just kind of work with it you know don't stop trying to Mm -hmm. to help yourself Mm -hmm. and um they're all close they're pretty i think tight-knit or they try to stay in contact I did meet a few along the way that they don't go to anything militarily. They do stay at home quite a bit. And honestly, from from what they told me, that does that is a big problem for them too. I think it's just, it just comes down to seeking out each other, putting the effort into yeah, just talking to each other about it. Did you meet anybody that you were deployed with or anybody that was in Tikrit when you were there? On my journey? Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Everyone I had to play with is in Ohio. So my route was mm. Virginia, Kentucky, Illinois, Kansas, Colorado, Utah, yeah. Nevada, and California. It was, it was so far what south. What was the hardest part of the ride? Well, I, I don't mean to... Every country or every part of the country presented totally different challenges like the, the Appalachians starting east to west just starting right into the Appalachians. Was right, so you're going into the wind the whole time. So yes, you, you the headwind. You made it hard wind. for yourself for, from the get-go by deciding yes. to go east to west. 
yes, the, the headwind was, especially in the Rocky Mountains, that the headwind was relentless. And then you would um, crest, well, then the mountains were difficult alone, but then you would start to crest and you're like, oh my gosh, it's the summit. And then pff, huge headwind right. and you almost like go backward. But yeah, the headwinds were a challenge for sure. But um, honestly, I think the biggest threat along the way, it wasn't people, like everyone thought it would be, it was the heat. I feel like the heat mm -hmm. was this little sneaky ninja that in the Ozarks, it was the hu the humidity was the humidity, nuts. yeah. Uh, just yesterday, I had two women in here um, who are endurance athletes, and and one of whom uh, did Ram Race Across America, like her and a teammate. They did it what eight days? I think they did yeah in eight days they rode across America, uh, and she was saying that the hardest part was it was the Ozarks, right? The Appalachians or the Ozarks? I think it, I think of the Ozarks. She was like, yeah, the Rockies were hard, but like the Ozarks oh, were I, like super hard. I mean, they go yeah. west to east. So they're coming up the other side mm -hmm. from where you rode, and I'm sure it wasn't the same route, but um, she was saying, yeah, they were steeper and windy and like brutal. Yeah, they just come out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I must've been just super geographically challenged. I thought after the Appalachians, it was just gonna flatten out for me. And I was super excited and it, that's the Ozarks started. So. Uh -huh. When when I hit Kansas, that everyone told me. Well, by everyone I mean quite a few people told me that I would hate Kansas. It's boring. You can see as far as you know. You can't. It, I, I loved Kansas after the Appalachians and uh -huh. the Ozarks. It was it was like a dream. It was amazing. No it was hills 60, for the 70, next hour for many days. days. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and the straight line. It's great. You could just kind of let your mind race instead, instead uh -huh. of you like going crazy. It's just a steady. Did you, know, you, you know, listen to music or audiobooks or yes, you, you, you did. Yeah, I listened to music every day. Uh -huh. um, on the trickier roads, I'd leave like my left earbud out, right. you know, so I can hear the cars and everything. But music was huge on this thing. Um, my playlist was super random, and but different songs were perfect with different cadences and intensities. And then, of course, just the mood, my where my thoughts were at that day. Uh -huh. The music I would just pick. To cater to that, oh, so man, I can't. I can't oh, so. listen to music for long periods of time. Like I need something else to focus my brain on. Mm -hmm. So I would listen to podcasts or audiobooks or something like that. I should. Oh, another thing is the sounds of nature were amazing. I uh -huh. mean, if I knew I'd be in a heavily wooded area or something like that, I would just turn it off and just listen. You can just hear your tires on the pavement, and then right. all the all the sounds around you. It was, it was just wonderful. And how did you? deal with food? I mean, were you ever in a situation where the next place to get something to eat was too far away? Or did you make sure you had enough packed with you all the time? Yes, I always carried three days of food on me. Um, and I mainly took oatmeal. Oatmeal was huge for energy and everything. It's, it's almost like my body knew exactly what to do with it. Uh -huh. And I could just go and go and go with, with oatmeal. So I had like my cook set and, um, my food, bananas were helpful, but they're heavy. Yeah. But yeah, I would carry three days of food on me just in case. And did but, you ever come, when you would come into a city, would you be like, I'm going to, I'm getting a hotel room. I'm going to take a shower. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes. I, my, I think my favorite part one at night was the camping though. Like that was my very favorite was to end the day and just sleep under the stars and listen to everything. I just cycled through and the, the air and everything. I, I don't know, I love roughing it so much 
um, that was a, a huge plus for right. the trip for me. So you get but into yes. Colorado and then you have a unfortunate encounter with a truck. Yes. What happened? I was, uh, it was the first day into the Rocky Mountains. So I was coming up on my first incline in the Rockies after going through Kansas. And I was on a curve and this I, this big black truck came over. He was just starting to come over more and more. So I went over, but there really wasn't a shoulder. It was just sand. And so coming I went- towards you? No, behind me, behind, behind me. I watched my rear view like a uh -huh. hawk too. So um, he just kept veering right, veering right. So I did too and I, went off the road, went into the sand, and then fell back into the lane and um, just missed his trailer. He was pulling a trailer. So I just missed his trailer and then landed in the lane. There was a car tailgating the truck that didn't see me because they were so close. So I, I threw my arm up real quick and they swerved around my head, basically. Whoa. It was so loud, the sound of the tire. When I'm at a red light and someone's goofing off and they peel out, I still like, you know, that sound is so distinct and it was so piercing. And um, so the night before I ran into, uh, have you heard of Team Rubicon? Yeah. Uh, they're, they're much bigger now, they're awesome. Um, a lot of veterans, mostly veterans are in there and they were working on a project locally. There'd been some fires and then mudslides and then flooding. So mm -hmm. they were clearing out some of the rivers and creeks and everything. And they were working down the, the hill that day and they heard the tires squeal. Wow. They're like, we wondered why there wasn't a crash afterward. And I was like, oh, that was me not getting run over. No big deal. But I partially tore my PCL ligament in my mm -hmm. knee. And um, I stayed in Colorado Springs for like two weeks trying to recover. Cause I didn't want to go. I wanted to continue. Yeah. So it just wasn't getting better. I I waited. I went to the VA a couple times. Of course, they're like, change your socks, take Motrin, drink water. You know, you'll be you're cool. You're cool. In like Super three helpful. days. Three days yeah. tops. You'll be back in the game. So um, I did everything right. I elevated. I did all the all that stuff. So I got on my bicycle after two weeks, flat ground, no weight, and it swelled right up. And mm. I I knew it was. It wasn't good. So yeah. I ended up going back to Nashville. I had to let it heal then over the winter. And then I had to wait for winter to end because the Rocky Mountains, I was starting literally back into my first mountain the day I started back. So um, the winters last a lot longer at the top of the, yeah. the summits. <clears throat> so I had to wait till, let's see, I started back on June 2nd from Pueblo. So I went back slightly on the route um, like a day or two back. And Pueblo was very special to me. They, they actually had a send off. They felt bad it happened in their state. And I was like, uh -huh. one bad That's apple sweet. doesn't. Yeah, it, it was, oh, I just, it was mind blowing, really. The, the whole trip really was. The kindness was nuts. And um, they had a send off there. And uh, the, there's a bike shop there, uh, Great Divide. And they, they tuned my bike up for free for me and everything. And they, there was a group of cyclists that rode with me that first day back, back oh, out. It's cool. It, it was really odd. The support was incredible. It really fueled me to, it's like, I'm definitely finishing this. That, that first day back, there was an incline and I knew that that would kind of set the tone. And I, I busted up that thing. I couldn't, uh -huh. oh yeah, I got up that. <laughs> it was so liberating to come off. There's nothing worse than being athletic or in the middle of something like that and having an injury. and going through that recovery. That's what kind of brought things to a head to begin with. I was like, cool, another vicious cycle. I made it halfway, just over halfway. And 
but I'm like, no, 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 not, not this time. I'm like, you have to finish what you start. When you had to go back home and nurse that injury, how did you prevent yourself from succumbing to another vicious cycle and falling into a depression and emotional eating? And you know, how did you put the brakes on on basically falling prey to what had handicapped you previously? I think the difference this time was that I'd let people in and I had this support system in place. And there were all these people that were encouraging me that I, that I was making a difference for them also, mm-hmm. that I was inspiring them and answering their messages. I would message with probably a dozen, maybe two dozen vets a day. Like, you know, hey, this is inspiring me to be more active or I'm gonna start this thing, I'm gonna hike this and oh, do that. Cool. And like, I read your story and like, you're amazing. I'm like, no, I'm just, you can do, trust me, you can do it. Uh (laughs) And so I was having all these conversations and interactions with other veterans through my Facebook message or Facebook page. And all these people, I couldn't possibly consider not continuing this time. And so I I actually had an army buddy of mine come down for a couple of weeks and help me train and get kind of back on after it had been, after I nursed it for a while, he helped me get back on track and Mm -hmm. that was super helpful. I just made sure I did everything right. I documented my recovery and everything. I think that pressure really, really helps me. I like to kind of be under pressure. Yeah, the pressure and and being a member of a community that was quickly growing and Mm -hmm. of which you were, you know, basically the hub with all these spokes. That made me feel awesome. I mean, Mm. I love knowing I'm making some kind of difference. So finishing what I started was a no-brainer to me. I was going to do whatever it took to do it. I was like, I'm going to have to, I mean, it would take me probably losing a leg to not, even then, even then, I mean, whatever it took, I couldn't let these people down or myself. I was like, no, I'm regaining this lust for life. You know, I can feel it happening. I can feel the healing happening. And um, so that was really my, that was the difference this time really, is that I let people in and then it became this totally different cycle. It was, mm-hmm. it was beautiful, it was awesome. And the idea was, I wanna connect with America, this country that you know basically I went overseas to serve. Um, I wanna get to know the people that live here. Um, what else did you learn about our country? With the you know you you're connecting with all these veterans, but what did you not expect to discover, or what I guess surprised you? The the kindness and warmth surprised me in that another thing that was kind of bumming me out quite a lot actually is just how divided everything feels anymore. No one's looking for reasons to like each other, and it just feels like everyone just kind of hated each other, and um especially over the last couple of years with the media, social media, stuff like that is all this negativity all the time. And you already kind of feel alienated enough. Um, and then to kind of come back to a society where no one's really getting along, you know, yeah. <laughs> it, it is a bummer. And that definitely contributed to, uh, you know, me wanting to reconnect with the country and experience people again. The surprise was that the, the warmth was overwhelming from mm-hmm. east to west. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like we are very divided right now. And we're sitting here the day after midterm elections. Um, if you're on Twitter or Facebook or on social media in general, if you're watching the news, um, 
it can be depressing and dire to uh, come into the sense of, of just how differently so many people see the world and, and how we're unable to have um, healthy communication about these things. But when you know I go out into communities, it doesn't reflect what you're seeing on Twitter. You know what I mean? Like right. when you're with people in person one-on-one, totally then I realize maybe we're not really as divided as it appears or that picture that's being painted um, perhaps isn't as accurate as reality. Yeah, when you're sitting in front of the person, there's almost like a little more respect is required, you know? And um, I think uh, people tend to maybe share other people's words and thoughts on social media. They're not having to formulate their own and really think through why they're heated or emotionally charged about things. They're like, yeah, that sort of lines up. I'm gonna post this and then they lose friends or or people get offended. And, you know, it is a problem. Uh, reconnecting with people in person is is completely different when you're sitting there with someone. Mm-hmm. Like you wanna give them their their chance to talk and vice versa. It's it's just a lot harder to be rude and dismissive in person too. I mean, I think people want to get, I, I, deep down they wanna get along and be happy with themselves and ever, I, I would think. So mm-hmm. it just felt, um, like I said, very divided and negative. So I wanted to get away from that too. Um, so I didn't really spend hardly any time on social media. I would do a blog post maybe once every three weeks or something. I, I could have done way more. I, I would get messages like, "Are you alive? Like, right. can you can you say something? You know, yeah. I'm, I want to know how this went." I'm like, "I'm sorry. It takes me a while to get my stuff together. Plus, I I tried not to be on there too much, but still enough where people know what I'm doing and and things. Mm-hmm. But it was a really nice um, experience detaching from all of that." And, and I miss it. I do kind of miss just kind of being out there. Yeah. I mean, I miss it very much. That's, and I was gonna tell you, uh, well, we hadn't talked about the the remainder of the trip yet, but coming home is is a lot like coming back from a deployment too. Yeah, uh, that was, I was curious about like that. that because now you've done another huge adventure, right? Mm-hmm. And you have a reacclimation period different from returning from deployment but also the prospect of having some kind of big letdown and becoming depressed um, would be, if not expected, uh, normal, right? Mm-hmm. So I imagine you were there was some fear, like, is this gonna, am I gonna have that experience again? That's exactly what happened. Well, people asked me what I was most afraid of about it, and it was finishing. My honest answer was always finishing. Uh, th- then what, you know, square one, and just another vicious cycle. That was that was my biggest fear, uh-huh. and so I decided during my recovery, I really put together a, an idea for a veteran program and nonprofit that I'm I'm starting in Nashville, taking mm-hmm. veterans out in nature, detaching together. Um, Waypoint vets, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So. Uh, so you could return with this mission of of basically paying forward the experience that you had. That's exactly right. what I want and need to do. Is I would always ask people on the trip, "What can I, what can I ever do to thank you or repay you?" And uh, I said, "Just pay, you know, continue it, the kindness." And uh-huh. That's exactly what I'm going to do. That's exactly what I've been missing. There was uh, that New York Times article <clears throat> that shared your story and the story of a num- number of other um, veterans who have had similar experiences. 
um, to your own. And they mentioned this organization called warriorexpeditions.org, right? So it was some guy who like basically had the same epiphany that you had. Mm -hmm. And it's like, look, we need to get these guys home and get them out of nature. And their stories about veterans coming home and walking the Appalachian Trail or just really having that quietude, that silence, that, um, you know, ability to phase themselves back into a sense of normalcy slowly and over time that I think we lack. And, I, and as I recall, there was a story in there about how that used to be like, I can't remember where it was, maybe you remember, that used to be something that was kind of structured, like when I, when I, like the, the soldiers would literally walk from wherever their battlefield was back to wherever they lived and it could be, take weeks or something like that. And that space allowed them to decompress sufficiently mm -hmm. to ward off some of these you know, PTSD symptoms. But when you just get on a plane, you know, one day you're in Tikrit and the next day you're in Ohio, you know, that's gotta be yeah. super weird. It's like, what just happened? Yeah. It's so quick. So yeah, taking the time and consciously tackling some of the things, that, getting away from the stimuli daily, all these little daily decisions and these little mundane things we worry about every day, just eliminating those from the equation. You can really do not only soul searching, but um, you can kind of hash through a, a lot. Like what, what do I really need to be thinking about all the time? Um, it, Cause it simplifies your life. And so you can, you can also tackle big things to simplify your thought processes, mm -hmm. your daily thought processes. Like on the road, it, it was so simple. Um, you you know what you have to do. You have to cycle this day, and then you plan where you end, and then you have a plan for food and water, and you have everything you need on your bike, and you don't need anything from anybody. So you get to enjoy the experience of the day and the experience of meeting the people. You know, it, and then you're happy. And yet yes. we create these lives <laughs> that are so, so complicated. We create all these complications because we delude ourselves into thinking that's what's going to make us happy. But it's actually only when we strip away all of that and get back yes. to kind of the bare necessities. Yeah, I got home can, and I didn't even, Yeah, I, I still don't know exactly how to dress myself yet. I'm still wearing like the same four things um, uh -huh. even today. You're wearing your cycling kit right now. Yes. Yes. Well, it's I know. <laughs> Honor the fallen. I had to. I had to, but yes, I, I've, I have worn this um, otherwise. So it's just, yeah, you just kind of, you don't want to add all that back. If anything, you want to go back out there to where it's, it's normal. And um, another reason this was so helpful is that it like justified that hypervigilance, having to watch everything. And it's so quick paced and any little thing, like a chipmunk could end you out there on, mm -hmm. on a decline. It's it's funny, but also it's, it's true, like a pine cone, literally, you could lose control and you know, coming down a mountain, um, a gust of wind, things like that. Like you have to constantly be on point, you know, watching everything. Like you have to be in the military. Yes, yeah, it was, it was really nice to conjure all that back up and those skill sets, um, just knowing that they were still in place and that it was an environment where I, I could use them and not feel weird or yeah. silly. <laughs> well, I think, in the wake of this adventure, you know, on this issue of, you know, how are you gonna, you know, this fear of completing it and is this gonna set in motion another, you know, vicious cycle that you're gonna have to overcome, you know, the the post, you know, elation experience of coming down back to earth and reintegrating yourself back into your life. 
the distinguishing thing, the, the difference is that this was part of a healing process, right? Like you're mm-hmm. healing as you go by connecting with these veterans, by connecting with your body, by connecting with nature. So when you think back on this bike ride, is it the adventure aspect of it? Is it the challenge aspect of doing something that was very difficult and maybe you thought you couldn't do? Was it the connecting with the veterans and just Americans in general? What aspect of that do you think has been the most impactful on your healing process? Or is it just all of those things together? Well, the the easy answer would be all of it. And the truest answer would be all of it. But uh, I really feel that I I wasn't okay. And, And I'm really no good to anyone unless I'm good to go. And this the reconnecting like you said with your body with nature and with people it i think it just really takes all all three of those things that's mm-hmm. why i want to do this next step and i've i've felt like my life was changed forever in a really good way um from east to west i just i like to relive some of the days randomly throughout my day mm-hmm. and um I, I just I want to facilitate like smaller versions of of what I for, like you know experience firsthand this healing. I want to help other veterans get a sense of that or at least introduce them to it. I think that's a worthy uh, that's a worthy venture. Um, you know, we just you know we like to say um, we support the troops. Thank you for your service, uh, but we don't do very much in terms of supporting those troops once they come home. And part of that is the government's responsibility. And part of that is our responsibility as a community of civilians and how we interact with veterans and how we support them and making sure that these services are readily available to the veterans in need and that an environment is created in which they feel comfortable availing themselves of Mm -hmm. that, right? Because the statistics are shocking. 22 a day take Mm -hmm. their life. How How many are thinking about it? How many have failed suicide attempts? How many are depressed? How many are over medicated? You know, I mean, the numbers have to be astonishing, right? <clears throat> the Veterans Administration can't solve all of these problems. Um, and we as a culture need to do a better job of raising awareness about what's going on and finding solutions, supportive solutions to addressing and solving this very big issue. Yeah, I, I think I've said in my blog, I, I feel like we have a responsibility to ourselves and each other and are fallen, you know, to help each other, pick each other up mm-hmm. and fight through this war inside that we're all facing just maybe lighter or darker in different different times for the individual. But it really, I think, comes down to us helping each other. I think the people best equipped to help us are us. And uh, I think people want to help but don't really know how. And a lot of times we don't know what to tell them. We don't know. 
Yeah, it's awkward from as somebody who's a civilian and you encounter a veteran, you don't really know what to say. You know that you don't really understand their situation. You want to say the right thing and you don't know what that is. So you say, thank you for your service. And then there's like, okay, are we done? What do I say now? Right? Yes. Yeah. It's awkward. <laughs> it's weird. Right? I'm I sure you say, have this all the time. Yes. I always say thank you for your support too. I mean, uh-huh. without without that support and encouragement and that back and forth that, that's it never gets old you know um to hear thank you even though we we don't feel we're deserving of the thanks a lot of the times or um we kind of shy away from the compliments or the word hero or, or anything like that you know um humility is you know we think about the people we lost um when when we hear that stuff and um sometimes it's just better to say thank you and thank you for your support because you know, like I said, we had a, a welcome home when we got back. If, it, if that mm-hmm. wasn't in place, who knows how myself or my friends or, right. or any of my generation that, would. Yeah. 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 Do you think that the movies get it right? Like whether it's Hurt Locker or did you see Thank You for Your Service? Did you see that movie? I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just curious as to whether you think that that Hollywood accurately reflects that experience or whether it's a you know a glossed over version or if there is a show or a movie that that got it right what that would be i thought hurt locker was very well done i really did and i think that um i think they definitely try to be as accurate as they can they have to i think glam it up for the audience but um for me the the parts that get me in the movies is the the coming back and that Did you see coming of, home? Mm-mm. That's a, no. a classic. John Voight coming home from Vietnam. You should see that movie. Okay, I will. I will. Because but I interrupted that is you. The, sorry. No, yeah. no, no, no. I, I'm making a mental note because I should see a movie about a Vietnam veteran coming home. I've spoken yeah. with so many Vietnam veterans. Um, they probably give me some insight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the least I could do after all they've given me. So yeah, speaking but, of yeah, which, coming like, home is the heart. I think for me, it was the yeah. weirdest part. Like you'll never be the same again. The, the child is lost. That or that innocent. Or I don't know. There's so much that could be attributed to it. But mm-hmm. you know, you probably never be the same again. Or maybe relate a lot less with a lot fewer people. Things like that. It was cool in researching your story and looking on your Facebook page and your blog and, and seeing a couple of videos. My favorite is the, I assume they're Vietnam veterans, the vets who were on motorcycles who escorted you down to the Golden Gate Bridge. Yes. That was super cool. That that was, that day was amazing. They were the, the Legion riders, the American Legion riders. And uh, it was very last minute, short notice, and they came out there. I went to the war, the War Memorial Museum uh, downtown mm-hmm. San Francisco, and and met a guy who's the chair there. And then he and a commander from one of the American Legion posts there um, made a couple calls and said, "Hey, we got this, you know, combat veteran. She's cycling across America. She's finishing. You guys want to come out and you know be there?" And they did. They totally showed up. Um, it, it was mind blowing the the last minute support like that. Just people hearing about it and be like, "We're there. We're just there." And um, I I try to tell as many veterans as possible that we we do have a family out there that's bigger than any one of us can ever imagine. I never imagined that I would have that outpouring of support like that, mm-hmm. you know. And um, 
after after moving states and losing touch with people, not seeking out veteran organizations and not talking to other veterans for a while, I totally forgot about that, you know? Um, and I just remember we all met at the the north end of the bridge and crossed into San Francisco. So I was in the bike lane on the Golden Gate and then they were in the, the regular lanes because mm-hmm. I couldn't be there and they couldn't be here. So, um, and they were just cranking their, oh, oh, it just sounded thunder. It was like this thunderous, wonderful thing. And so we crossed the the bridge and while I was on there, I was just thinking to myself, like, this is it, you know, this is, this is the finish line. And I just started thinking about uh, all the support I'd gotten and it really took me over. I mean, I, I was halfway down the bridge where the the arches or the cables kind of went, uh, were at their lowest and I mm-hmm. caught a glimpse of the Pacific and I, it was overwhelming. And so afterward we, we went through a part of San Francisco, which is very hilly city. Yes. I didn't, oh, I was, I was very fatigued. I was like, I can't mess this up uh-huh. the last day. That's that's ridiculous, Sarah. Get it together. But um, and you made a promise that you were never going to walk your bike, right? Y- yes. Yeah. yeah. I never once walked my bike on the trip. That is something I just did for me. Um, it wasn't prove anything to you know to anyone but myself. I just that's something I really wanted to do, and I stuck to it. And um, actually. I did walk across the sand of the Pacific, uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, when, you have were to. You, were you at the Presidio or were you at Ocean Ocean Beach? Um, it was Ocean, Ocean Beach, Beach, right? Yeah, which is yeah. a really long. Well, it's a it's a long beach, but it's also a very wide beach. And um, so I got to the stairs, and they they were all on the sand. I went down the stairs with my bike. I had all my stuff on there. It was heavy, you know, and the, the bike was just sinking. And I was pushing my bicycle through the sand, and it. It was very diff. Honestly, it was very difficult. I and I was kind of coming up on some muscle. You're like fare. 100 yards from the beach, and you're like, yeah. I'm not going to make it. It was like 800 foot that. walk uh-huh. in my defense, but <laughs> my legs were. I mean, they were hit muscle fair after the inclines and everything. Um, and I just I looked down at my feet and I equated kind of my shoes in the sand and my my boots in the sand overseas. And I remember that's when I felt like the most capable. That's when I felt the most alive. Um, and something just kind of happened. I kind of got this second wind, the second wind that could sink ships, I said in my thing. And and everyone was just yelling, you got this, you know? And I heard all those voices and I just, it all came together in my head. And honestly, I was that close to muscle failure, like no one knows but me until, <laughs> until now. Uh-huh. But it took that and something just clicked. And I just, hauled. Oh, I mean, I don't know if I can swear, but. You can swear. I, I hauled ass now, that's very mild too. But um, I just pushed and I got to the shore. And when I walked in the water and I kind of, I felt the, the waves rush around my ankles. It was like, I felt, everything i felt everyone mm-hmm. everyone we'd lost everyone that supported me um everyone that was there and, and couldn't be there i just felt them all i just really felt deep down in my soul that i'd, I'd made them proud that that I, I it was a mission accomplished and yeah and a, a mission accomplished for yourself but more importantly uh a, a mission that represented um healing for other people as well yes yeah yeah i mean you can take back control of your life and your happiness i mean we have to we have to take control if you're not going to do it no one's going to do it 
No, no one right. can. People want to do it for you, but they don't know how. You're the, you're the only one mm-hmm. that knows exactly how to do it. One of the things I like that you said was that in the military, you're 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 trained to um, believe that the M16 becomes an extension of your arm, right? And that the bike then became yes. the the extension of your arm for you, like you'd swapped one for the other. But it has that equal, you know, that that equal importance to you. Yes, when the day I purchased it, I. I got a little choked. I've been talking a lot about crying, but I'm not a big crier. I want to go on the record to say, but I did get a little choked up when I bought that bike secretly. I just, I put my hand on the saddle and I was thinking about that connection, you know, with my M16. And it's like that, I relied on that. It relied on me. You keep it clean. It keeps you alive. And you, you, now I have my bicycle and it's going to get me from one side of the country to the other. And who knows what's going to happen in between. And it's just me and my bike, you know, and it, it was really a, a special connection. Um, I don't know. Uh, we I knew we'd go through so much together already. Like I was already thinking way ahead to all the possibilities and the elements and all that stuff. And then uh, at the end there, having it with me that whole time, having been through everything we'd been through, all the inclines and the tornado in Kansas and um, uh, you, you just glossed over that. Oh, sorry. Go through a tornado? Um, there was a tornado warning that oh, okay. it hit very close. Uh-huh. I hid in a storm. Well, I, I hid in a storm drain for part of it and then ended oh, up man. in an element, an aban- well, not an abandoned, an unused elementary school. Uh-huh. I ran into this lady who had a key. And I'm like, do you know where I should probably go for this tornado warning? Because I was just going to sleep under that awning at the uh-huh. city park. <laughs> and she's like, I happen to have a key to this elementary school. And she let me in there and I hid under the foundation. <laughs> oh, my God. I found an old piano. But there was, and... no, there was no tornado after all? No, it touched down nearby. Oh, it did. Wow. Yes. Oh, yeah. It, it was coming, uh-huh. unfortunately. Was there a moment where during the ride when you realize like, oh, this is working? Like, was there a, a tipping point where you're like, oh, this is healing. Like, this is gonna be profound for me. Or was it just in the completion of it? No, it, it was throughout. One. It was totally throughout. Yeah. Um, well, gosh, the the town that we started out in was uh, Yorktown. There was this restaurant, the Beachcomber restaurant, and we just randomly met. We just walked in and randomly met these people. and. All the staff and the guests in there, they all came out and took a picture with me. And um, just from day one, it was like that. Yeah. People wanted to know and get on board and everything. The healing, there were, I mean, there were uh, several things that happened th- throughout that made a big difference. Um, there were a couple instances where I was genuinely worried that I was going to make it. Uh, the Ozarks, I had a very uh-huh. scary day where I, I was running low on water and uh, I'd rationed it, but. It was so hot. It, I mean, it was 108, but the feels like was in the one teens that day. I took a screenshot on my phone. <laughs> like, this isn't real life. I was screaming at gnats. Like, I thought I was losing my mind. I, I definitely had um, heat exhaustion for sure. And I poured what was left of my water over my head and s- smacked myself in the face a few times, literally. Uh-huh. And I was just yelling at myself as I got, you know, to this next town. I made it to the next town. Honestly, I, I really was worried about making it that day. And um, when I got there, I, I can't wipe the smile off my face even now. Just knowing I'd been through that and made it through and that I made it to that town, it was the most exhilarating rush. 
ever. And then I got sad thinking, is it really going to take this for me to feel that, you Uh know? Like, can't I just feel that after like a really right. good photography shoot? Yeah, like or something? you got to turn it up to eleven. Like just I didn't to burn feel. my toast today. Right. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, is it really gonna take this? But um, that really was a that was very exhilarating. Um, that I could still mm-hmm. the the climbs the climbs up the mountains. Um, there was one called that came out of Haters Gap. It's called and appropriately named. And it was a three point eight miles, but. Uh, only 3.8 miles long, but it was a 1500 foot climb. So it was, mm. well, I'm not straight up. I don't want to exaggerate, but I mean, it was really intense climb. And it was the first big climb like that. And um, I did not stop or walk once. And I think that's when I first realized physically, like I can make my mind control my body again, instead of the other way around. You know, I, I was getting so down about my physical limitations. Yeah. And um that's the, a huge the daily pain. And it's like, my God, I just destroyed myself and I feel great and I don't hurt. Like it was a cycling is is beautiful like that. I mean, even if you have these ailments or limitations or whatever, uh, it's no impact and it, it's lighter on you. Even even when you're doing stuff like yeah. that, I mean, you can work through that. Um sort of pain where it doesn't become overwhelming and you fail. And so much of the the climbs were mental. So I had to dig into the mental. And with me, sometimes if it gets extremely difficult, I'll just start cracking up, like just because of how preposterous, how ludicrous the situation is and I'm doing it and it just cracks me up and that gives me my own second win in a way. Uh-huh. And um, so these things would happen on these inclines. The, I described them as like a death and rebirth. Um, you kind of kill yourself going up and then you, it's like a reincarnation on the way uh-huh. down or something. I said the the inclines are littered with discarded demons and then the, the declines are tears of liberation. Like that's exactly how yeah, it felt. Cool. I it was like, like I'm gonna, I'm just gonna use my demons to earn my wings here. How you is know? your, how is your pain now? <laughs> it's now that I'm not cycling every day, it's creeping in. So mm. I'm so trying the cycling to cycling keeps it at bay. It does. Yeah. You build some muscle like a muscle base. You know, you don't have to use heavy weights. If if someone's struggling with a lot of chronic pain and um, joint issues or muscle issues, cycling really is a great way to stay active and everything without overexerting or uh-huh. further injuring yourself and building that muscle base slowly. What is your relationship with cycling gonna look like now? Oh, I well, I miss it. I I love it. Yeah. I I don't want to go so far as to say I get it because I have only been doing it for so long. I don't want to, like people have been doing this their whole lives and I say they get it. You know, there's a reason. I, I'm starting to fully understand the therapy. It's very therapeutic. Mm-hmm. I'm really starting to appreciate and comprehend the healing and the push that comes with it and that you get that solitude while being active. Um, so it's it's like the healthiest way to really kind of take some time for yourself and and take in nature and yeah. you know you should uh, like think about starting like a century ride for veterans or you know trying to introduce cycling to veterans. I mean, I, I presume mm-hmm. you've already thought about these things with the venture that you're launching. But one for one of the activities, cycling yeah. would be. I love the idea of a century ride because that I mean. I did one century ride on my trip and I just felt like Wonder Woman or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I was just seeing those triple digits. Um, there are some places around 
Nashville, I could do that, or really anywhere. I'm I'm looking into doing some um, outings, you know, all over the country. I know there's one in particular. This one pass I went over in Colorado called Monarch Pass. It was the highest point on the route, and that was a doozy. And that view at the top was just um, breathtaking. Yeah. What was left of your breath? Because um, the uh-huh. air's a little thin up there, but it just sucks the rest out of you. It's it's literally breathtaking this view. And there's a gondola that takes you to the very tip of it. Um, I would love to take a group of veterans up and over that thing. That right. that would be wonderful That's for fun. them. And for me too, yeah. But um, I was well as far as the healing. I would say the the handful of days where I didn't know if I was gonna right. make it, and then um, the the people, it was the people, and not just veterans, just everybody. It was everybody. I don't think I really had a negative encounter with someone I met while on the journey that I can think of. And no moment where you thought you were unsafe or? There might, there was one moment um, I was uh, going to arrive at a, what I thought was a campground and it ended up really just being a trailhead uh, with a picnic table. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll find a little patch of flat land. And uh, it was a very remote side road. Like uh-huh. no one should be back there. Like a meth lab back there or something. No, well this SUV, <laughs> like super sketchy SUV went by and um, uh-huh. it was pretty beat up and everything. And I, I got a bad feeling about it. So they right. started to circle around to a main road to come back around. And I took off on my bike through the woods to this mm. other road and cut through to this other road and continued on my route. So I, I like totally lost them. <laughs> um, but they were definitely coming back probably to see if I was the only one there, which I yeah. was. and. Um, having traveled a lot or part of it alone, everyone was asking, you know, do you carry a, a handgun or a gun? I didn't. I didn't actually mm-hmm. carry one. I had pepper spray and two knives. And so the pepper spray would slow them down. And then if I absolutely have to use my knife, I, I totally know how, you know, but um, I didn't even come close. You can avoid a lot of situations, honestly, if you with with forethought, yeah. really, and especially um, probably from. I definitely have the military to thank for thinking like that, and um, I love that it came in handy because I did I did avoid a lot of things too, just by cutting cutting conversations short or not going in somewhere or getting mm-hmm. out of somewhere. That hyper vigilance that kind of comes into play because all I mean I read you know body language, facial expressions, inflection, voices, yeah. all that comes into play. Um, so it really did come in handy, and I loved that I had to use it. <laughs> it's cool that that the ride ended up getting a bunch of attention too, um, because when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, well, this must have been something you planned for a long time, and there was a whole bunch of energy about what you were going to do before you started. But it's like, <laughs> no, you just bought a bike and like, <laughs> basically started riding it, um, yeah. and and. Uh, you know, you've generated all this interest out of what you've done. Um, Bicycling uh, magazine wrote a great article. There was the New York Times thing and a you know, bunch of stuff out there if you just poke around the internet. And those cool videos from the news the news crews that were there when you finished in San Francisco. Yes, yes. So it must be wild for you because you were kind of just doing this for your own personal healing, right? Mm-hmm. It was it was definitely wild for me. I wasn't I wasn't doing it for any kind of spotlight really. Right. I, I actually didn't even know really how to go about making it like that. I just uh I made a um I called it a vicious cycle. I made a logo. I wanted people to know what I was doing. I made um 
paracord bracelets to fund the journey initially. So by wanting them to know what I was doing, I, I basically made a post on Facebook. I'm selling, make hand making and selling these paracord bracelets. If you know anyone that would like to buy one, that would be awesome. I don't want free money, you know? Uh-huh. I, I sold them for like 20 bucks each and made 300 something of them. And, and so I think through my Facebook page is how like the New York Times contacted me and I asked them how they heard about it and they, I, they just replied with the Facebook page. Wow. I, I still don't know exactly. Right. And, um, and so some of the news out, it's just kind of been a whirlwind in a way. I mean, the the message is important and I'm, I've am i decided early on to welcome anything like that mm-hmm. because um, this journey did help me. And I know that um, talking about the issues along the way and and publicly, you know, to the news and everything is making a difference. I mean, if if this has inspired even one other veteran to to go out and do something like this rather than take their own life, like that's enough for me. Yeah, uh, I'm, so, I'm so sick of us dying, honestly. So, so and I didn't want to add to it, so I started this. On that note, I want to um, wind this down with. Like typically in your experience, like what are we not getting? What do we misunderstand about the veteran experience? I think part of it, honestly, I think maybe would be um, sometimes putting us on a pedestal or something or um, kind of viewing us as different when really we just want to, we don't want the attention necessarily. We just want to be making a difference kind of behind the scenes in a Mm -hmm. way. So maybe uh, that is a aspect of it or um i think just sometimes maybe key questions are ones that shouldn't probably be asked uh it, just casually like did you see any body parts or did you kill anyone stuff like that uh-huh. you know just in casual conversation not a good idea I think that's what a lot of veterans are kind of um avoiding that but like the plague you know and um, now I know as far as there's a lot of resources and more and more coming into play. That's why part of my thing is contributing to the solution here. And there's a lot of new organizations and programs that are available now. Um, that where can people go to learn about that? Like, what are some of those? There's a actually there's a really good resource that I know of, um, connectingvets.org. Um, they post a lot of different options, places to go, and it's not just call the suicide hotline. You know, they call it the hotline like it's a 900 number or something, but yeah. um, they they always are, they seem like they're really up to date on a lot of different options for veterans. Mm-hmm. So that's one I know of for sure. And the the VFW and American Legion are already in place, you know? Um, and when I went around to them, uh, before I started back out, I, I visited as many VFWs as I could because at that point I was like, I want to get my message out there, tell them what I'm doing. And I was completely welcomed in right away. Uh, and it wasn't just about joining or let's talk about war stuff. I mean, it was just casual fun, um, like lots of swearing and, and having a lot of laughter and just us being how kind of how we were mm-hmm. when we were in and, and things. So. Those are very helpful, I believe. Uh, if, if people Do you think my not age, enough veterans take advantage of those yeah, definitely opportunities, not. especially veterans my age, I think they have a this perceived notion that you know it's all 
That's like a Vietnam grumpy. veteran thing. Yeah, and they thing, just they're going to sit. To all these super old guys are going to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and there are there is uh-huh. some of that. I mean, quite a yeah. bit of that because of the, this. So yeah, getting I think a younger generate the younger veterans into VFW and American Legions and AMVETS. Um, or I mean, if you have a motorcycle, you know, there's the Combat Veterans Motorcycle Association. There's tons of motorcycle clubs. Super patriotic. A lot of veteran run ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it just takes some get, putting yourself out there. I think that's the key for veterans is to put themselves out there. And and for civilians, just maybe, I guess, just kind of being casual and, and treating them kind of like they're, they're like you or something like that instead right. of... And, and for those civilians uh, who happen to have uh, veterans in their lives, whether family members or, or friends, what are some of the warning signs that, that that veteran perhaps is suffering and what is the best way to approach that with I think some of the warning signs would be the isolation or uh, maybe actually quite a bit of happiness out of nowhere for a while, something like that. Um, making it a point to spend important time with as many people as possible on a whim could maybe be a sign that something's coming up that's not too good. Um, Like they don't want to be alone, like almost in a manic way. Oh, no, that um, possibly they're trying to make these quick memories and best and great times with people because they're planning maybe on doing something themselves, like signs like that. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that. That's interesting. Um, Because that was kind of part of my thought process. It was visit as much family and friends as possible, send um, photos of me with them so that they have them, get all these things in place, you know, things like that. So it would be the least hurtful to them, Mm. that sort of mindset. But um, and I've and I've had uh, there's been veterans that have done that that sort of behavior and then followed through mm-hmm. too, um, making kind of big financial decisions or really uh, that that sort of thing, big purchases even maybe um, trying desperately to have uh, that excitement or fulfillment or something and then it's it probably won't work you know buying yeah a crazy amount of stuff for for helping it's a lot to ask but. Like, just don't give up on the person. It's so much easier to say than do, I, I know. But um, even if they're not showing much or don't seem as appreciative or thankful, a lot of times you're making the, the difference. You know, I'm not encouraging an unhealthy or dangerous relationship mm-hmm. to continue if it shouldn't. But if if they know that you're that having you as that constant or knowing that constant's there could be the one thing that that's keeping them from from ending it or doing something uh, wild, uh, dangerous to themselves or someone else, right. having a constant of some sort. And if you're that constant for a veteran, just oh, I hate to say hang in there, but a lot of times, yeah, if if possible, you know, or try to approach it in that way where. It's like uh, you know, I'm I'm here for you, and knowing someone's there is important. Right. But I know not a lot gets accomplished just by saying that I'm there for you, but just by by actually physically being present and consistently showing, you know, that they they can come to you when they're ready or confide in you, and mm-hmm. the, the less pressure, the better. You're available. I suppose. Right. Yeah. Um, 
that's really helpful. I think that's all like super important information. Um, and we gotta we gotta wrap this up, but uh, I just wanted to end it with saying that um, there are a lot of people out there who are suffering. Uh, a lot of them are suffering in silence. So if you are listening to this and you are one of those people or there is somebody in your life that you know is suffering, um, that there is help available, uh, please reach out for help. Don't try to solve this problem on your own. Raise your hand, make your voice heard, seek out the resources in your community and the people that you trust, confide in them, tell them what's going on, be honest. Uh, find those resources that Sarah mentioned. Uh, I'm sure if you Google you know, this stuff, there's gonna be plenty of things available at your fingertips um, and to not do it alone, right? Um, the fact that 22 veterans take their lives every day is, is devastating. And for all of those people out there that are listening that suffer from PTSD who are not veterans, um, I'm speaking about you as well. And uh, thank you for sharing your story here today. It's super inspirational. Um, amazing that you were able to climb out of that and now be of service to other people. I feel like you should organize you. a bike ride that rides up, <clears throat> up to the US Capitol and that a group of you can, can uh, have your voices be heard in Washington, DC, so that at least at the highest level, from the top down, uh, we're addressing and redressing this problem. Yeah, no, thank you so much for saying that and having me. And I think once people are allowing that support to come in, it's it's gonna be overwhelming what, what's in place already in your life that you might have become blind to having fallen into a rut or a dark place. You know, when you're at the bottom, it's hard to see mm -hmm. what's really going on. So that's really important because uh, you may have convinced yourself that everyone will be okay, but they won't. Um, they never will be the same, so. And sometimes it's, it is those tiny gestures that can make a huge difference, right? Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, what's next for you? I am going to continue to focus on building my nonprofit, Waypoint Vets, waypointvets.org. And uh, I'm going to be, I mean, I'm applying for my 501 and uh, mm -hmm. that's the first big step. Right. Aside from that. Um, that's like building. a whole thing, getting that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I want to do it right the first time. You know, I I need to build an inventory, gear, camping, fishing, hiking, canoeing, kayaking, cycling, um, caving. I'm excited. Caving. Cool. Yes, like in caves, not right. like when you cave in. No, I know what you're saying. Yeah, that's cool. Like all <laughs> different kinds of cool adventures. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Just yeah, adventure, awesome. either... Um, preferably overnight adventures where you bond over a camp at, at the end of the day. Um, after an emotionally and physically taxing day, there's nothing beats just kicking back and being among like-minded, I mean, other veterans. So much healing happens from detaching in nature with other yeah. vets. Just, I you know, realized it firsthand. So that's definitely what I want and need to do. It's gonna keep me here for sure. Cool. That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Thank uh, if you people so are listening much for having me. to this uh, and they want to, they're falling in love with you and they want to connect with you, how do they, is there a, where, where should they go to your Facebook page? Where's the best place? Yes. The, um, I would say go ahead and go to a vicious cycle.org or waypointvets.org. I have a email 
and um, I have a Facebook page for both also, facebook.com slash a vicious cycle and slash waypoint vets. And I check my messages all the time. I message with veterans all the time. And it's it's actually, it's very comfortable too. We just send back and forth whenever and you could say or not say whatever. It's, right. it, it's nice, you know, yeah. it works, it works. It's helped me, it's helped others. So message anytime, cool. I, will, I will answer, so. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thank you for your service My then, pleasure. and thank you for your service now. It was an honor. Cool. How do you Still feel? Is. You feel okay? Yeah. You good? Yes. All right, cool. Awesome. Well, come back and talk to me again sometime. If you'll have me, I would be honored. Right. Thanks, thank, Sarah. Thank you so much. Peace. Intense, right? I mean, for real. But thank you for taking that walk with me. I really hope that you enjoyed it. I enjoyed her. I think Sarah is doing some amazing work for our veterans and, uh, and that's inspiring. Uh, and I feel very strongly about leveraging this platform to have real conversations about mental health, which I'm becoming increasingly convinced is one of, if not the most important, the most misunderstood, poorly diagnosed and, and, and critical predictors and factors when it comes to human suffering and human well-being. In any event, you can support Sarah's mission by visiting waypointvets.org as well as her personal site, aviciouscycle.org. There are also Facebook pages for both. And of course, I'll put all her links up in the show notes, which are copious and comprehensive and which you should always check out on the episode page on my website, richwell.com. You can let Sarah know what you thought about today's conversation by hitting her up on Instagram at a vicious cycle and on Twitter at AVC Sarah, Sarah with an H. Uh, if you would like to support our work here on the podcast, there are a couple ways to do just that. Tell your friends about the show or about your favorite episode. Uh, take a screen grab, share it on social media, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on YouTube, on Google Podcasts. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I wanna thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo, behind the scenes production, audio engineering, show notes, interstitial music. He helps me write these scripts, all different kinds of stuff. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for video and editing the podcast, which you can watch on YouTube. Jessica Miranda for graphics, DK for advertiser relationships and theme music as always by Analemma. Thank you for the love, you guys, and the support. I will see you back here in a couple days with another great episode. Uh, Next up, we have Quest Nutrition co-founder and host of Impact Theory, Tom Bilyeu. Uh, I did Tom's show a while back. I had a great time. I'm super impressed with him as a person and what he has done with his platform. And I'm excited to uh, flip the script and uh, share his story with you guys uh, in a couple days. It's a good one. Until then, much love to all of you. Please, if there's someone that you know out there who is suffering from depression or PTSD, extend a hand, uh, offer some help, some comfort. Uh, Life is short, man, and we need all the help that we can get. Until then, peace. Lions, namaste.